listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network, presented by SB Nation, hosted by Jake Devereaux, and featuring Keaton DeRocher. Welcome back to the Over the Monster Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I am not joined by Keaton DeRocher or Matt. Um, but I am joined by Ian Kundal of SocksProspects.com. You can find Ian on Twitter at, at Ian Kundal, I-A-N-C-U-N-D-A-L-L. Um, Ian, welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks, Jake. It's great to be back on. And it seems like we might actually be moving towards maybe having baseball, which is uh, is good because it's this, this little stretch has been pretty tough, I'd say. Yeah, it's been really tough. Have you been able to um, watch any of the Korean baseball stuff? I, I have. I, I, I've had some nights where I haven't slept very well, so I've, it's been nice to kind of just wake up in the middle of the night and throw it on with the volume off and just see, you know, actual baseball players playing. And uh, I, I've enjoyed a couple, the couple of ex-Red Sox players who are also playing over there. Um, pretty funny watching, like, Casey Kelly and a few other guys playing. So it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's actually – the baseball's pretty good. Like – I've been pleasantly surprised. I don't know about you if you watched a lot, but... Yeah, that was actually my general impression, too, was I wasn't sure what to expect because I'd heard it was a little bit worse than than Japanese professional leagues, and, you know, I was kind of thinking somewhere around double-A. It seems triple-A-ish, I would say. I I would agree. Um, I think you get the kind of the same amount of breaking stuff that you would see in triple-A and, you know, some some experienced hitters who know what they're doing, and Mm -hmm. generally I've been really enjoying it. Yeah, and it's, it's like it's got that mix of you have like kind of the organizational, like decent AAA players who never cut it in the majors, guys like Jerry Sands, or then you have, the, but you also have, you know, those guys who have a pretty significant, some major league experience, but for whatever reason are back over there trying to reinvent themselves, like Dan Straley and stuff. So it's got a nice mix of some names we know and then some new names to keep an eye on in the future. Because as we've kind of seen these last few years, there's always a couple guys from that league coming over. I think like last year, Josh Lindblom. Uh, Lindbaum came over. Uh, he was one of the best pitchers, and now he's obviously with the Brewers. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, if any of these guys end up making the jump state side at some point, you know, this year or next. Yeah, that's for sure. And not only just to see the domestic guys that are possibly going to make the jump, but there are a couple of Korean guys in there yeah. who are also expected to be posted and make mm-hmm. the jump and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's been really fun to watch that. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, I've become a, a full KBO fan here. No, but, I'm not waking know. up at 5 a.m., you know, <laughs> to watch the games or anything. But if, I, if, I'm, if I'm up and they're on, I'll throw them on. Yeah, it's interesting to also, you know, you're talking about this a little bit, but the efficacy of the game as sort of a a lab for people to figure stuff out over there. It does seem like, you know, it is effective just from a standpoint of some of these guys going over there and maybe being able to get some guaranteed playing time and figure some things out. And, you know, there's been more successes, it seems like, than, than, uh, than misses for guys that have gone over there and just, you know, done well and, and parlayed that into a contract here. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that as teams, we'll probably discuss it a little later, as teams are going to be more restricted uh, domestically with how they can acquire talent. I wonder if, you know, going more international for proven players is another way teams will look to kind of leverage that. And they can, you know, they'll have eyes on those guys already and kind of, you know, fill those voids when the draft gets inevitably much smaller. Yeah, and, and that leads us into our first big topic of discussion tonight, which is uh, the Red Sox uh, and how this upcoming draft is going to affect them 
Uh, it has been announced by Major League Baseball that the draft is going to be shortened to just five rounds, which was uh, very disappointing to me. Um, you know, I don't. Let's talk about that first, I guess. My initial impression of this was just how short-sighted it seemed by Major League Baseball um, to choose not to negotiate with the players' union uh, over this draft. They rejected the first proposal, and they had the right to just make it five rounds if they wanted to, and they did exercise that. But what it looks like, and especially looking at the savings that they're going to be getting from uh, rounds six through ten, it really does seem like that savings is negligible compared to the amount of value that hitting on just one of these guys will provide. And I was looking at an article today on The Athletic uh, of all of the hits that have happened from rounds six through 30. Um, and there are some pretty huge names in there. I mean, Wade Boggs was a seventh rounder. It's mm-hmm. it's crazy the amount of guys that are seemingly going to get missed by by not having this. Yeah, definitely. And I think part of it is like the owners obviously have wanted to shorten the draft for years. That's the worst kept secret in baseball. You know, they think it's too long. And and frankly, I do think it is too long. I think 40 rounds is a little much. But do I think five is too short? Obviously. Like, I think something 25, 30 is more realistic. Because you think about it in a given year, teams only sign between 20 and 30 draft picks. So there's no real point in continuing to pick you know, guys you know you're not going to sign, or a bunch of them. Like every year the Red Sox are taking, you know, 10 to 15, even 20 guys they're not going to sign. And that just does seem a little excessive to me. But I do think that part of the problem is it's the combination of the owners, or I don't think it's all the owners. I know it's not all the owners. It's certain owners do not want to spend because they're worried about their money. And then it's also, though, I think the draft is another one of those things that gets caught in, this, in the uh, players, owners, leverage negotiations. And from the player's point of view, it seems that they looked at it that this was the proposed, the owners proposed the five round draft in this, the, whatever the agreement was, they signed a couple months, I think in March mm-hmm. about how to go forward. And they looked at it that if they, they, the owners proposed making it a 10 round draft with, I think round six to 10 with half the slot values of last year. In some deferred money. In exactly. There, and, and the small. players said no, because they viewed it that if they were basically said, oh, we're open to modifying the agreement we have in March, it loosen or it takes away some of their leverage when it comes to the big fight, which is going to be the one we all know is coming about how player salaries are going to be figured out for the upcoming year. Yeah. And that seems like that could get underway tomorrow because yeah. the owners were just given uh, just gave their OK to Manfred's proposal today. So now it passes to the players union. To and see that seems like it's going to be that. a disaster. So. Yeah, it really does. It makes me a little bit concerned about whether or not a season is going to happen or not. And, and, you know, initially my thoughts with how this whole thing has gone is that it didn't seem like we were going to get baseball at all. And then it seemed pretty sure, like 90% that we were going to get baseball because, you know, the almighty dollar has has its way usually. And now with the players union seemingly dug in about, you know, a significant number of issues, it seems like. It seems like it's not even just money. Um... I'm now also doubting whether or not the two sides are going to be able to get this figured out and play nice in time for for any baseball to happen. Yeah, I agree. And I think, obviously, first and foremost, the biggest concern needs to be the health. And I think, I believe The Athletic today had a really good article um, discussing, like, what happens with players who have, you know, are at a significantly higher risk for contracting the disease. Because if they have weakened immune systems, like like David Dahl was cited as someone who has a significant spleen or doesn't have a spleen. Um, Mm. Guys like that, and and Sean Doolittle had a really good thread on Twitter just talking about, yeah, like, what is the health impact? How are we going to prove? And I think that's obviously the biggest hurdle. 
in terms of like the human interest or kind of that side of the thing. And then obviously baseball wise, the big issue is going to be the money because that's going to be it seems like it's a non-starter, the split, which MLB is proposing. And so I just don't know if that's something those two issues are something that can be kind of bridged in order to have a season. But hopefully they'll be able to figure something out. But I do think circling back to the draft that that was part of it just kind of got caught in the crossfire between those two. And if the players were willing to negotiate there, the owners, you know, it's what is it? You give an inch, someone's going to take a mile or whatever the saying is that if they were willing to give a little bit on the draft and change, you know, the document that they agreed upon, it really weakens their position that, well, you guys already agreed cut and dry and we signed it that said that if the season is played we just get a prorated version of our salaries versus what the owners clearly want which is a split of revenue so yeah yeah and and the players have no way to get that money back on the on the back end of their careers i mean they have this finite resource which is their prime playing days so you can't blame them for wanting to dig in much in the way that like an nfl running back holds out exactly and I mean, at the right now, they've already got their like security blanket, which is I think it's what is it, 170 million or something, and so they have some money from this year, and I think that they're willing. If they were willing to take that, with the chances that you know health would shut down the season, then I don't see why their position would change now. If they're willing, they'd have to play, but it's still a significant health risk. You know, they're going to want to be compensated for that risk and for the money that the owners are still going to make from because there's still going to be TV. There's still going to be playoff revenue. Like, yes, ticket expenses are sign- or ticket revenue is a significant amount and concessions and all that stuff. But it's not the be all end all, you know. And I think there are ways the owners would be able to recoup some of those losses in other avenues, especially with the expanded playoff format, which is part of the proposal and things like that. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And unfortunately, the draft being kind of cut down seems set in stone and. For a team like the Red Sox that, you know, really needs and uses the draft as a way to kind of rebuild their farm system since they're not really out, you know, selling players, except for obviously this offseason, selling players for prospects. Um, they're kind of at a big disadvantage, let alone what happened with the draft pick being taken away. Yeah, so let's talk about the draft pick being taken away for a second. And I think you, you lead into a great point here. Um, so the Red Sox penalty to me for what was found and I'll, I'll say that i'll say was found in quotations i guess because there was not much found at all um it seems like an overreaction to me uh i haven't really got a chance to talk about this because i wasn't on the initial pod when when the punishment went down but it does seem like a little bit heavy considering they kind of knew that this uh draft would be shortened they didn't know how shortened it would be but now it's significantly shortened and there's not a lot of room for the Red Sox to make that up on the other side. It seems kind of like an outsized penalty for the Red Sox. So I guess this is a two-parter for you. Do you also agree that this is a significant penalty for what was sort of uh, not that big of a, a transgression by the team? And then secondly, how badly does this affect the Red Sox bonus pool and their ability to you know, get a significant amount of helpful players added to their system uh, during this current draft? Yeah, I, I guess with the first one, um, I as soon as it happened, I, I, I said, I, I think a lot of people's initial reaction were, oh, that's not that bad, just in the context of comparing it to the Astros. But immediately after I ha- it happened, I, that was my question was, did they factor in the potential for a shortened draft in deciding this punishment? Because a second round pick in a shortened draft is very significant to me. And um, I don't know if that question, I don't think anyone ever asked the Red Sox or Rob Manfred if that was taken into account. 
but I at the time thought it was significant and I still think it is especially in a five round draft I mean we're talking about the team has lost you know 1.4 million a little over that in slot money they only have now 5.2 million or a little under 5.2 million which is the fifth lowest of any team in the league and I think more importantly it's just they've lost a chance to take a high-end player you know with the limit on undrafted players being twenty thousand dollars and the red sox now only having four draft picks they can only add four guys for more than twenty thousand dollars this year and you know you go back and like last year for example uh they took 24 guys they gave 24 players more than twenty thousand dollar bonus 2018 it was 20 2017 it was 24 and they signed two undrafted guys for more than 20k you know we're dropping from 24 20 to 24 players to four this year who are going to get more than 20k I mean, just think that that's a huge drop off and just a huge talent drain coming into the or lack of talent that's going to be coming into the system. And, you know, now they're kind of in a situation where I really wonder if they're just going to be forced to go significantly under slot in the first round and just basically try to give, you know, four guys a million or to a million and a half or two guys, two million and two guys, 500K, because they just don't have a lot of ways you can use that and you have to use it somewhere. So it just it just really takes away and especially with a team that needs all the high-end talent they can get you know their second round pick would probably be a guy who would immediately slot into the top 20 prospects in the system just guess going off of who i think would be around in that range and that's you know you think about it top 20 in this system is not great you know you get down past eight nine ten range and we're talking about a lot of lottery tickets in the low minors Mm -hmm. so losing out on that is pretty significant and there's no real way to make up for it you know it's not like they can go out and give someone, you know, an undrafted free agency of $500,000 or anything. That that money's just gone and they're limited in the undrafted free agent market too. Well, let's let's uh, hit a listener question about this very topic. We got a question from Brandon Stewart and he says with the potential of 20k uh, free agency after the shortened draft or draft eligible players, do you think the Sox go nuts and sign a bunch of guys to refill the minors to try and prior or do they try and prioritize the ones they want? So before we get to the, or did they try to prioritize the guys that they want piece of that, what is the percentage chance, do you think, and I, you know you can answer this however you'd like to, but what is the uh, odds that significant baseball players, you know, guys that would have gotten way more than 20K had they been uh, you know, drafted in the 6th or 7th or whatever round it was, even if they were drafted in like the 10th, especially high school kids. I mean, you're going to get almost none of them, it seems like, um, guys yeah. that would usually get these huge overslot bonuses. But like, is there actually going to be any real talent um, willing to sign for 20K? I think there has to be. There will. It's mostly going to come from the college ranks, though, because just like college, let's be honest, college baseball is in big trouble with this and the likelihood or prospects of college football not being played because when you look at college baseball college baseball doesn't make a lot of money right they get all their money subsidized from football and they only have as a team like 11 scholarships or 11.9 scollarships something around yeah, 11.7 yeah and you know you're running a new situation now where you're going to have way more kids going to school than the colleges anticipated but you also combine that with you're going to have kids coming back who you didn't anticipate who were, you know, juniors or sophomore eligible draft eligible players. Because now, you know, we've gone from, what, 2,000 players being drafted to, what, 150 or something? Yeah. And then the other aspect is seniors are going to come back because the NCAA had made a ruling that they've given everyone an extra year of eligibility who played a spring sport. So 
college teams now have a big issue because they're just gonna have too many players and too much money given out and when they don't give out full scholarships you know they're gonna be certain players that probably can't afford to go back to school they were planning on getting drafted and being paid and now instead of you know making money they're gonna be paying more money to go back to school and so I think that's kind of unfortunately and it's it's a sad kind of sad that that's what we're talking about here or that's kind of the state of college athletics when it comes to baseball but they're going to definitely going to be college juniors or college seniors who are just considerable talents who go undrafted, who are going to sign for the 20K because they feel like they don't have a choice. And, you know, it's all going to come down to the area scouts and the relationships they built with those kids. You know, can they find someone like Jaron Duran, who last year was, I think he was their seventh round, or no, two years ago, 2018. He was their seventh round pick and they gave 189,000, you know, as a college junior. Is he someone they say, look, you can go back for your senior year, try to come into the draft. But as a senior, as we've seen, the seniors have no leverage anyway. Right. So even a guy like Noah Song, who was considered a you know a early second round talent, went signed for a hundred thousand dollars. Granted, he did have a unique situation, but still, that's way less than I thought he would get, even with the two year commitment on the books. So you know you're going to have some college juniors and college and especially college seniors who will sign for the twenty k, but. It's just going to be it's going to be a free for all, and I think they are limited too in the number of players they can give twenty k to. I, I don't know if that's like has finalized, but I, I remember reading somewhere that that was something that was in discussion because obviously we haven't read like the full you know specs for the draft. I think that 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 what what was going to be limited is if the first proposal of the um, ten rounds was accepted. Then there was going There's to be, going to be a, five twenty k exactly five twenty k guys, but now that it's, it's just five rounds, it's okay. unlimited slots. So that makes sense. They can presumably go out, but like you know, the point that you just made about the senior signs, there are a lot of seniors who have a, you know a decent amount of talent who are signing for like ten thousand bucks. Yeah, with MLB teams. So if those guys are juniors who are going to be put in that position to sign for ten k potentially next year, it does seem like. It would benefit them to be able to be a little bit selective as to what organizations exactly. they go and to. That, and that's one area where I think the Red Sox have can sell pretty well to those players is like, look, our farm system isn't very good. We're a well-known team. We produce talent. We have a pretty good track record with developing players, except for pitchers, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, but, if um, you're a pitcher, don't come But here. <laughs> we have a pretty good track record with our player development apparatus. We have continuity. You know, the guys in charge of that have been here for years. Guys like Ben Crockett, Ryan Abraham, et cetera, have been here for forever. Um, and, you know, you have opportunity. And especially, you know, it's going to be interesting. I don't know how this is going to – because let's be realistic. There's not going to be a minor league season this year. Yeah. I Like they're going to be doing kind of like an instructional league thing down in Florida most likely. So we're not going to really know this season how it's going to shake out in terms of how rosters matter. But going forward, I mean, you look at the Red Sox system and something kind of we've been talking about in the status uh, – the system series that we'll talk about a little later, I, I'm guessing. Um there's just significant holes in certain areas and the Red Sox really can sell that. And I think that's, you know, that's what they're going to have to do. Cause when you're limited to having forged guys, you know, you give over whatever it is, um, over 20,000, you get those four and then you have to augment that class somehow, you know, you can't just bring in four players. So it's going to be really interesting kind of seeing how that breaks down and what players prioritize because on the one hand, it's obviously, it really sucks for them because they're losing out on a lot of money, but they also have the opportunity that a lot of people don't is they get to choose which team they go to. So 
Yeah, and that seems like yeah. it could end up shooting the teams who wanted the five-round draft in the foot. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. You know, teams like the Pirates and stuff like that that I think were probably one of the more aggressive teams uh, not wanting to pay guys. No one's going to want to go sign with the Pirates. No. And the same thing like the Marlins, teams like that. But I honestly, I'm not sure their owners care. Let's be honest. Like, their owners are not big into the, the baseball operation side of it, you know. Obviously, it, it, every I'm, I would assume every general manager in the league basically told their owner they're against the five-round draft. But at the end of the day, money talks, and you know the owners are getting to save, what is it? I think it's about a million dollars per team, which is negligible, realistically. But to them, for whatever reason, they've seen it as not being you know negligible. So Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort just of sad. weird. It's sad. Because the other thing is you're turning kids away from baseball, and that's the long-term ramifications of it. You know, yes, you're going to have a bunch of kids in college and it's going to create, you know, maybe the drafts going forward are a little stronger. But there's a lot of kids, you know, if you're growing up and you have a choice, you know, we see it already. The two sport athletes who can you, you can go play basketball at a D1 school or you can play baseball. You're going to play basketball because you get a full scholarship. And then you the end. And then, you know, obviously you look at what MLB is doing. Like, why would I want to get involved with that? You know, why do I want to toil away in the minors for four or five years if once I if I eventually get drafted again? Like things like that, just it just doesn't seem long term. Like the you know twenty five million or so you're going to save across all the teams is worth the long term ramifications. But I guess you know someone thought it was so. Yeah, yeah. what's the what's the saying there? Uh, the penny wise pound foolish by these owners. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's. But it's 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 going to be interesting to see what the Red Sox do. I mean, strategically, puts them in a very interesting position. I think it was Kyle McDaniel had an interesting. He had his first mock draft um, on ESPN uh, in Plus or Inside or whatever it's called now, and he talked about just a little bit um, about how teams are in the later half, latter half of the first round. A lot of them are just going to cut deals and try to go under slot because there's just no point in you're not going to want to go over slot for someone because you need to be able to you want to get as many you know better you it's better to have you know four or five solid guys versus one elite and then four you know lower slot guys Mm -hmm. so it's going to be fascinating to see kind of what happens with the draft and how the red Sox decide to approach it especially considering they're missing you know 1.4 million out of their or or, and their draft pool is so low now now my understanding is that those 20k signees that they make though are not going to come out of their draft pool correct correct so that's a separate it's like the 125k guys they could sign last year that okay. didn't count towards the pool. Okay. So well, it's going to be interesting to see. And yeah, I, I, I would assume they're going to try and load up on as many 20K guys as they can, but who knows? Because the, the Red Sox have money. They should not be one of the teams that's, you know, kind of skimping off the top and not being willing to spend. Now, are do you think that there'll be any sort of um, negotiations between players and uh, their agents or, or whomever or just the team and the players um, about teams trying to convince guys that maybe would have made significant money if they waited till next year, you know, went to JUCO or, or did something like that in order to be draft eligible the following season. Is there any way that like teams could kind of come to verbal agreements with them about if you take this 20K, you know, we'll buy out your ARB years and sign you to X contract later on? Or, you know, I mean, do you think any hope... of those negotiations will happen? I'm sure they will happen don't get caught because that's <laughs> going to be seen as circumventing the CBA and the Red Sox 
have kind of already gotten in trouble with that internationally a few years ago when they mm-hmm. were caught kind of packaging bonus or they were allegedly said to have packaged bonuses. So, um, yeah, I, I would assume it, the discussions will happen, but it's a real risk. And I, I just don't think it's realistic though, because for it to be worth it to a team, it would have to be such a good player that it would be so obvious what they were doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like for the risk, the risk reward, I mean, the guys that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking is like the Jaron Duran college junior types who would sign for like 150, 200 K, you know, if, if all of a sudden we're seeing a guy who was projected as like a second round pick sign for 20 K. There's no way MLB doesn't investigate it or other, you know, because the other thing you have to consider is other teams are going to be talking to that player. And if they're basically being told, like, we have no, we're not, we're going to college, don't worry about it. And then all of a sudden they sign for 20K, something's going to be fishy there. Yeah, they're, they're, they ought to have somebody auditing uh, the the moms of these players' driveways yeah. after yeah. this uh, whole thing so goes down. Isn't that just college recruiting, too? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> one thing I, I realized I forgot to mention, too, when it regards to the punishment I will say I do think the Red Sox were punished partially for the Apple Watch thing. Yeah. It was kind of like if they if they had just were just guilty of or allegedly involved with this really flimsy argument MLB made, I don't think there would have been a punishment or much anything more than a fine. But because they kind of had already been slapped on the wrist before, I do feel like MLB felt some pressure to be like, all right, this is your second time offense. Like we have to punish you now. Yeah, and I think that's legit. And, yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. And, and if that's and I wish they would just come out and say that though, because right. then I'd understand it more. But the way, but just saying the second round pick is tied to this, and then you read the thing, and the evidence is non-existent, and they're basically punishing JT Watkins for being good at his job, which is ridiculous. It just it doesn't make sense. But yeah. Yeah, he got a raw deal in this. Oh, he thing. got absolutely thrown under the bus, and it's not. It's not. I don't think it's fair at all that he got punished because. You know, it's just a weird situation where he's an advanced scout in addition to being the replay guy. So, of course, he's going to be picking this stuff up in-game. That's his job. So what do they expect them to do? Like, not write it down in-game? Like, I just I just don't understand what the MLB logic was behind it. But what can you do? Right. And, and you and Chris mentioned on your pod that, you know, those two jobs that he held – you know, they kind of complement each other to some degree. If you're good at one of them, it's going to help you in the other job. So it kind of makes sense for MLB teams to make people wear two hats. Right? Well, exactly. And are they expecting him to, you know, do one job during the game and then stay at the park until 3 a.m. working on, you know, doing something he could be doing at the same time as he was doing the first one? Do you know right. what I mean? Like, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. So. Yeah, yeah. they're going to need to readjust that system because it it seems like that was such a minor infraction. I mean, guys like J.D. Martinez were just so adamant that nothing really happened and they still feel that way. And I certainly feel a lot better about the 2018 season now knowing the extent of what happened because Mm -hmm. it, it seems like, you know, there were many, many teams who were doing this exact same thing as well. Yeah. I, I do think, though, it, it, I just don't understand why MLB just doesn't go to, like, the college football replay system and just have it be like there's one MLB, you know, MLB assigned official whose job is to determine if the play needs to be reviewed or not. Like, yeah. I don't understand why you have to leave it up to the teams. It would also save time because the only time there's a re- granted college football replay system is ridiculous. But it would save time in terms of you won't have those kind of frivolous challenges that managers throw out, especially later in games, since it's kind of a use it or lose it situation. And especially also when you consider like MLB already has certain situations where it is automatically reviewed or they get the memo from, you know, the commissioner's office, they need to review this. So 
I just, yeah, I don't understand why that's not man, just not uniform. And then you would, this wouldn't be a situation you have to worry about. It seems like that's something that's going to have to be a topic in the next CBA negotiation uh, between the players union and, and MLP because um, technology is just advancing far beyond, you know, what, what the rules actually say for it at this point. And I don't know if they're ever going to be able to keep up with it, but I've, I've read a lot of solutions from people, you know, writers for various sites um, to, to this problem. And it seems like there are a lot of sensible solutions out there that could be fairly easily implemented to prevent the temptation of using technology. Exactly. And I do think it's kind of one of those things, you know, when the baseball CBAs are negotiated or when the rules were written, they weren't anticipating this stuff being, you know, an option. And now it is, and you have to adjust. And so it's going to be interesting to see how they adjust. Yeah. All right, so let's pivot here for a second away from the draft and to what a season for the Boston Red Sox might look like this year. Let's just say they figure some things out in, you know, somewhere around July 4th. Um, The season is starting. One of the things that has been talked about is having 30-man rosters rather than the 26-man roster and a fairly significant taxi squad of up to 20 guys. So first of all, uh, Ian, what is a taxi squad and what would be the purpose of having such a thing uh, in addition to a 30-man roster? I mean, I think it's just basically their owners are being realistic that there's going to be no minor league season. So you have to have players that are ready to be called up in case of injury or probably most likely the more serious risk is if a player gets COVID, they're going to be have to immediately be quarantined for two weeks. And so you need to have players readily available in case a situation like that like that happens. And, and in addition to the normal wear and tear that baseball players feel. So I think the solution is they've decided that rather than since the minor league season isn't going to be going to keep guys healthy, that they'll create this kind of 20 man roster that will stay, I would assume, down in Florida, down at the spring training park. And I would not be surprised at all if they play like if they're playing games against either the minor leaguers who are not on the squad or against, you know, the twins or they play one other team every day to kind of stay fresh. But it's yeah, it's just kind of like an expanded 40 man roster and of guys who are kind of close to big league ready or who are the team thinks could be someone who could help out um, should an injury or need arise. Now, how would that affect service time? Do you think? I have no idea. And it's something I've been asking people about today and i don't think anyone knows until we see the actual proposal because i don't know what they're going to do with like does this count as someone being added to the 40 man how does it matter work for rule five status for option years like it's going to be a really interesting thing and i think that's one of the kind of the nitty-gritty details that we still need to find out yeah yeah that's a huge point and that affects so many players in in such a key way um so yeah we'll be looking for that but let's talk about those last four spots on the roster, we I've been really looking forward to what the final cutdowns were going to look like with Bloom and who was going to get those roster spots when it was a 26-man roster. And now with the 30-man roster, it opens up some interesting possibilities for some other players. And all of a sudden, they don't need to make some of these close decisions that they might have had to make at middle infield or regarding Bobby Dahlbeck or some of these other positions. So who are some people who maybe stand to benefit from the 30-man roster? I think the first person or the two people who benefit the most right off the bat are Jonathan Lucroy and uh, Jonathan Arouse, because with a 30 man roster, you're obviously going to keep Arouse. You know, they rule five him for a reason. He was pretty strong in spring training, but 
after they signed Yair Munoz, it kind of created iffy number. It, would they would they have a spot for him? And obviously, as a Rule Five pick, he has to be on the active roster for them to keep his rights going forward. And I just think that when you have a thirty man roster, he's a lot easier to stash, um, especially as kind of like a glove first guy who can run a little bit. You know, there's a there's a there's a place for that on the back end of that thirty man roster. So, and then similarly with Luke Roy, you you have to you're going to have to run three catchers if you're going a thirty man roster. And as an RI, uh, Luke Roy now looks to have a decent chance to make the team. Um, especially when you look at the other options the Red Sox have at catcher. You know, there's no real prospect who's realistically in the frame yet. Connor Wong's their best catching prospect, but he's a few he's a year or two away. And then at AAA, you know, they kind of have career minor leaguers in Jet Bandy and Juan Santeno who have gotten a cup of coffee here and there. But I think Luke Croy is someone who now has a much better shot of making the team um, with that expanded roster situation now realistic. And I think the third group you have to look at is kind of the relievers and it's funny when you look at High and Bloom's tenure. One of the things he's done is he's churned over those back of the roster, you know, relief, long relief types. You know, the guys like they're claiming Chris Mazza, you know, Jeffrey Springs, Austin Bryce, Matt Hall, Phillips Valdez, um, guys like that. You know, they've and there's they've obviously had other guys in those spots before. And now, you know, with the expanded roster, there's a good chance all those guys are going to make the team. And then the ones who don't, you have them that are, especially when you have like Phillips Valdez, Jeffrey Springs, Matt Hall, Mike Schwarren, Josh Osich already on the 40-man, they're immediately going to be part of the taxi squad. So I do think that the depth High and Bloom has built with those, you know, those middle relief, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh inning, fifth and sixth inning relief types is going to be useful in this situation because with the expanded rosters allowed them to keep more up at the beginning and then shuttle them on and off as they need um, down to the taxi squad. Now, do you think that um, he's going to keep up more position players on the active 30-man, or do you think that it's going to be um, – is he going to be utilizing those back four spots mostly for, for pitchers, or do you think it's going to be like a two-and-two two split there? I have a feeling they're going to have like a mandatory number of position players because they're not going to want teams having like 18 pitchers. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. So I have a feeling it'll probably be either a 15-15 split or a 14-16 split and like a maximum of 16 pitchers or whatever because as we saw with the 26 man roster didn't it say the maximum number of pitchers you could have was 13 right so i have a feeling they'll just scale that up and the max you could have might be 15 or 16 and so um i think that yeah that'll just be kind of how it works out and so it'll just be an even split or you know maybe they'll sneak one more pitcher on the hitter yeah so if if it wasn't even 15 and 15 split and we did have luke roy making the roster in addition to ploiecki um, and we kept Jonathan Arroyo on there, then it would open up that spot for Yairo Munez. Do you, Nunez, do you think that he would get that um, spot over Bobby Dahlbeck? I do. I just, I'm not sure Dahlbeck's ready. I'm not sure what they saw in spring training was enough to convince them, especially when, like, I almost think it'd be more beneficial for him to be getting consistent at bats down in wherever the taxi squad is working out mm-hmm. than sitting, you know, traveling with the team is definitely good experience, but it, he just wouldn't play, like, they have Mitch Moreland and Michael Chavis and Peraza playing first base and second base. And with Yairo Munoz also going to be getting some time, I would assume, at second base because I think he would make the team. It just creates a situation where I just don't see enough at-bats for him to make it worth it. I do think he will be up at some point this year if they play, but I'm just not sure out of the gate if it makes sense, especially if it the cost is, you know, they have to release Yairo Munoz, who, you know, there, there were some issues obviously with St. Louis, but he's still a decent player. You know, he's a solid utility infielder type who hit, I think he hit, yeah, he hit like 260 last year. 
granted very limited at bats, but he's someone who's proven that they can hit at the major league level. So I, I think that, and he's only 25 years old. So I think it makes sense more to keep him and then kind of have Dahlbeck get him some more at bats and get him ready with the eye towards, you know, if something happens to Chavis or in the future, if they, uh, if they need a corner guy for him to come up. Yeah, Munoz is really interesting, and I think this is going to end up being an underrated pickup by Heim Bloom because he's played second, he's played third, he's played short, he's played left, he's played center, he's played right. I mean, he's played pretty much everywhere mm-hmm. uh, during his career with the Cardinals, and in a situation like we have this year where you know there's obviously going to be a lot of attrition due to the shortened schedule and potential guys getting illness and things like that, I mean, this is kind of the type of body you want to have on your roster. Exactly, especially when you're talking about someone who actually like I mean it's it's he's I think he has like 300 at bats at the big league level, but he still has proven that he can hit major league quality pitching, and you know we're looking at yeah in his big league career he's triple slashes 273 331 391 I mean not a lot of power but that average in OBP is good enough and especially with that defensive versatility you know he's someone who can play all over that's exactly the type of guy you want at the back end of your roster and I think especially too when you consider their outfield depth I don't think is very good compared to the infield I think they have a little more infield depth when you look at the outfield you know if one of Benintendi Bradley or Verdugo is hurt and especially we already know Verdugo has a major injury question you know you're looking at Kevin Pillar playing every day and then JD Martinez is your fourth outfielder someone who you don't want playing the outfield you know and or if they're going to carry another outfielder you know you're looking at guys like Cesar Puello, John Andrioli like I, I just I think that Munoz makes a lot of sense in, in one of those spots because he's someone who could you can throw in the outfield ahead of JD if you need to and then if for some reason Pilar has to play every day then he can be your fourth outfielder for a stretch. All right, so enough talk about the roster here. Let's move over to talking about the excellent positional series that you've been doing over at Sox Prospects. Um, It's your state of the system in uh, 2020. And you've gone through uh, the pitching, you've gone through the catching, the middle infield, the corner infielders. You've broken it up into low minors, mid minors, high minors, and given us a real look, a real deep dive into how all of these positions uh, were acquired by the team and where the strengths and weaknesses are. Um, I guess, first of all, what prompted you to do this? Because it's a pretty big project and, and one that I've really enjoyed uh, reading, but you know, it's, it's a big undertaking. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, honestly, it was that once the season was delayed and it was obvious that I wasn't going to be going to games, uh, minor league games that, we, it was something we've kind of talked about doing for a while, just kind of investigating why the system is lacking in certain areas or strong in others and kind of how players were acquired also. And so we kind of put it together pretty quickly, a schedule, and just kind of started it going once it was clear that there wasn't going to be any minor league baseball to start off so we could keep the content train going. And uh, it's been a lot of fun to write, and it's been very interesting kind of deep, getting a deep dive and talking to people about each position and kind of investigating how – they've acquired talent because there definitely have been some trends emerging and things have changed over the years. And it, it's, it's been, been very enlightening and kind of, I think it's painted a picture of kind of shows why the system is stronger in some positions, weaker in others. And as a whole is generally pretty weak because we did talk in addition to players in the system, there's also, you know, guys who are no longer with the system talked about. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a really interesting part of this that I think often gets overlooked because we're not thinking about guys that aren't currently playing in the Red Sox system. But, you know, drafting and developing to to some degree Michael Kopech, 
you know, leads to a pretty big uh, transaction for the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, those have a, a lasting effect on the franchise. So let's get started with pitching. I think that's the, the thing that most people have mm-hmm. questions about when, when it comes to the Red Sox. But it's something that I've certainly got the feeling that they're headed in the right direction in regards to their pitching. So what was sort of the bird's eye view of the pitching, the quality of it in the system right now? Where is it strong? Where is it weak? And, and how do you see the trend going forward? Yeah, right now, I think the it's pretty obvious the strength of the system pitching-wise is the low minors, guys. And we defined low minors. It's not technically low minors. It's guys who were acquired in the last two drafts or signed internationally in the last two years. So, you know, we're, that's why, like, a guy like Thad Ward is in it or Durbin Feltman is in it, even though Feltman's pitched in A and Ward is pitched in Salem. So they kind of fall under this category. Um, but when you look in what they've done in the 2018 and 2019 drafts and then internationally too, they've in the draft, especially without significant use of, you know, draft capital, um, they've really churned out some very interesting guys and they've just gotten really creative in a way that they hadn't for a few years and they needed to, in order to rebuild the pitching. Cause as we've talked about, I mean, you, you and I have talked about it offline, their inability to develop pitching is like really bad. It's, yeah. It's they've they they spent you know they had that draft and I think it was 2013 where they gave you know um, Trey Ball in the first round like 3.6 million and Teddy Stankowitz in the second round 1.2 million and neither of them have got above the Pawtucket um, you know they've had a lot of big misses with pitching in the period you know before the series is covered and in addition you look at their high minors pitching and it's it's just not good you know that's the weakest group in the system by far pitching wise to me. Um, and part of that, as we, as you mentioned is because they've traded or they've traded a lot of the guys that would be in that group right now. Guys like Michael Kopech, Jalen Beeks, um, Logan Allen, were all traded Anderson Espinosa, um, Gregory Santos is another kind of under the radar name who's turned into a very interesting prospect out with the giants. He was part of the Eduardo Nunez trade. You know, when you add up all the guys they've traded, it's just so much. And you're kind of left with just, you know, Brian Mata's really the only guy left from that group. And obviously he's very good, but still might be a reliever, you know. And then just after that, it just falls off a cliff. But then, you, you know, you're looking at the low minors guys. And we're talking about like Thad Ward's the top guy. But you've got Ryan Zephyr, John, Chris Murphy, Noah Song, all guys in our top 20. You know, all guys who look like they could be starting pitchers. And the Red Sox have been able to develop some relievers. It's just starting pitchers they haven't. And now they finally kind of seem to have stocked that low minors with guys who you can dream on as starting pitchers. And then that doesn't even touch on the international market where within the last couple of years, even with only spending, you know, no more than they had one exception, the uh, Chi Jung Lu from Taiwan, who they gave 750000 to. But other than that, you know, they've signed a bunch of guys from the Dominican and Venezuela for two hundred to three hundred fifty thousand dollars, or seventy five thousand dollars in the case of Luis Perales, and all these guys have the reports out coming out of the Tricky League and out of Dominican Instructs were really good on guys like Perales, Nathaniel Cruz, um, Winkleman Gonzalez, Gabriel Jackson, who both pitched in the DSL last year. You know, we're getting really strong reports on those guys, and people are saying like they're guys we can dream on starting pitchers, and that's just something they haven't had in the system. And so that's why this group is so deep is it has the high end guys already, you know, guys like Thad Ward and Noah Song and like Song would be in our top five if we knew he was pitching this year. Mm-hmm. But th- they have those high end guys and then they have the depth, you know, they have those guys in the teens and then they have all these lottery tickets who have huge upside. 
both from internationally and then in the draft. You know, last year they signed Brock Bell for overslot, Brendan Salucci for overslot, Blake Lubier overslot, Bradley Blaylock overslot. They've given a ton of um, just overslot, but not significant, you know, in the 500,000 or less range to all these guys. And I think that's a good strategy with pitching, you know, with the with how frail pitching is and how easily guys get hurt you kind of have to throw a bunch of darts at the board and see which ones hit. And I think that's kind of the strategy they've employed the last couple of years. And I think it's really paying off starting to, we're starting to see kind of like the fruits of that labor. Now under Dave Dombrowski's tenure, did you see a noticeable trend in the differences on how the uh, team approaches acquiring pitching versus how they looked at that under Charrington? Um, I would say like with Charrington, they definitely were more willing to take the risks on the high school guys. Um, and you, you know, you're going back, you guys like, uh, and it, but it, the thing that's tough to compare them is also when Sherrington was in charge, they didn't have the exact, like the, the mandatory, uh, maximum you could spend at first. Cause you know, you go back in like the 2011 draft, the famous one, um, right. there was, or actually, I guess that was technically a Theo draft. So um, actually, with the Charrington, I guess Charrington was part of it. But when Ch- as when Charrington was GM, the, I guess the systems had just started. But they t- they tended to take it was a lot of either you know safe college guys with limited floor or the high upside high school guys, and it just didn't work out for whatever reason. And as you, that was the misses, you know, it was the Ty Butchers, the Jamie Callahans, who did turn into big leaguers but not starters. Kopech worked out, but. The 2015 draft, or no, it was the Trey Ball draft in 2013, Teddy Stankowitz. And it was just a lot of risk. And then you kind of saw when um, in 2016, which I think was Dave Dombrowski's first draft, was kind of Mike Hazen too. They had Jay Groom just fell into their lap and there was nothing. They they, they had no choice but to take him. And obviously that's been not worked out because of the injuries, but their upside's still there. But after that, it was just a lot of college guys. You know, you look at like Sean Anderson, Mike Schwar, and Steven Nagosik in 2016. Um, 2017, Tanner Houck, Jake Thompson, Zach Schellinger. I mean, Alex Scherf is one high school guy. So it's kind of like they molded into taking, you know, a bunch of college arms and then maybe sticking in one overslot high school guy. And that strategy, you know, while like Mike Schwarren is a big leaguer, Sean Anderson's a big leaguer, Nagosik is a big leaguer, you just don't get any upside out of that crew or it's very difficult to find them. And so, yeah, I think kind of we're seeing it versus last year, you know, you go back and you look and um, granted Dabrowski was still in charge, but there was a little bit of the shift. The college guys they took were kind of more higher upside, call, riskier college guys, guys like Ryan Zephyr, John Song, Chris Murphy. And it's going to be interesting to see kind of obviously it would have been better in a longer draft what Bloom kind of changed. But we'll see what happens with that going forward. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how he brings his knowledge that he has from the Rays and working with, you know, Andrew Friedman in, in the past and, and guys that have obviously had a tremendous amount of success developing a robust minor league system to see how that translates. And obviously the Rays have, have been great at developing pitching too. So maybe there's something that can be unlocked there. Yeah. The Rays, the Rays system is ridiculous as I think everyone, a lot of people know, but their ability to find arms just out like later in the draft, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh round. But in addition, after the 10th round, it's crazy. And the depth they've built up, you know, I looked at their system and, you know, you've got guys in the teens who would be in the Red Sox, like top, or pushing the Red Sox top five, like it's just crazy. And yeah, definitely, if if High and Bloom can bring some of that over to the Red Sox, it will definitely go a long way towards helping rebuild, continue to build out the farm system, which is definitely on an upward trend after last year, I would say. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I'm happy that I've seen over my life of, of watching the Red Sox and paying attention to the minor leagues is that I think we've seen that the um, the Red Sox have gotten away from having a very particular type of pitcher that they like, and it mm-hmm. seemed like for a while they were going after these big-bodied, uh, over-the-top delivery mm-hmm. type uh, pitchers, and if those guys uh, didn't work out, like, if they... if, if if they didn't draft those types, like you weren't a Red Sox pitcher. So they either tried to change guys delivery or guys that had a little bit of funk to their delivery. And, um, you know, maybe just weren't aesthetically perfect. They kind of shied away from those guys. And I think what we've seen through the years is like pitching is not something that has a one size fits all look to it. And if we look at Chris sale, I mean, his, Everything about what he does is not something you would teach uh, a, a kid to do, um, but it works for him. And I think they've done a good job recently of taking guys that are achieving good results. And however they're getting those results, they're trying to build off of the success they're already having rather than wholesale recreate that player. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think last year's draft really exemplifies that. You know, you look at a guy like Ryan Zephyr John, he was good coming he was good at Kansas. I mean he was very good, you know, he he had uh like a one eight one one eight whip, hundred and seven strikeouts in eighty eight innings. And they bring him to Lowell and they add a change up to him. And his changeup was seen as one of his weaker pitches coming out. You know, he was seen as a fastball slider guy and a lot of people wondered was he a bullpen guy. He comes to Lowell and all of a sudden he's showing up with an above average changeup. And you know, where did that come from? Well, he learned it from the pitching coach there and the player development guys there. And similarly, Noah Song was the same thing. And Chris Murphy was someone who uh, was at San Diego and he had kind of an inconsistent year, walked way too many guys, 43 guys in 64 innings, but he struck out a bunch of guys, 87. And he comes to Lowell, they tweak a few things with his mechanics and they change kind of like how he throws his fastball and change a few things here and there with how he's pitching. And all of a sudden, you know, he's 34 strikeouts in 33 innings with only seven walks. And, you know, they've done a really good job last year, especially with bringing those guys in, as you said, who they were kind of on the radar and known, but tweaking this thing there, or adding a pitch there, and all of a sudden their stock is up significantly. Yeah, it's definitely a, a much more effective approach, it seems like. So hopefully... You know, if, if some of these things can start to click and they can build off of them, maybe they'll start having the success that they've had on the positional side. Exactly. And that's what's so frustrating is that, you know, we're starting to see them getting figuring out their how to what they're doing with pitching. And all of a sudden, you know, there's not going to be a minor league season and most likely and they're significantly limited in the draft. And it just it hurts when they're starting trying to rebuild a farm system is a lot more difficult under these conditions. Yeah. Well, one of the areas it seems like the Red Sox are extremely weak is at catcher right now. Obviously, they've done a lot to uh, go out and remedy that with adding Connor Wong. Um, but overall, what's the picture look like for catchers in the system? It is not very good, as you said. And currently, um, they have one player, or sorry, there's three catchers in our top 60, and two of them were acquired via trade this offseason. Obviously, Connor Wong was the big addition. Uh, he's He's a very interesting guy he got a, i think he got a cup of coffee at spring major league spring training this year and he, with the dodgers last year obviously he was a key piece of the mookie Betts trade he had 281 slugged 541 24 home runs 11 steals and he's a really good athlete you know he's someone who you don't see this often a catcher second baseman third baseman that's not you know what you usually see but the big the question is um strikeout rate almost 31 percent last year 
that just doesn't play. You know, if you're striking out 31% in high A and double A, what's that going to look like when you get against even more advanced pitching? And so that's the key for him, you know, is figuring that out. But, you know, and he's immediately the top guy in the system, as you said. But thankfully, they do. They have a couple years where they can figure it out because obviously Christian Vasquez looks like an above average major league catcher. And he's under contract for, I think, two more years, I want to say, I believe. Uh, I think you're right. Two more years in a player op- or an option. I don't know if it's a player or a team. It is a club option at a pretty reasonable amount. And so, you know, that gives them some time to kind of figure it out. Um, and then obviously they also went out and acquired Johnny Pareda from the Cubs. I think he was acquired for Travis Lakins. And he's someone who had a down year last year, but good defender, can hit a little bit, no real power. But, you know, that t- catcher is a, such a position where you can get away with not having a good bat if you can catch. And until there's robot umpires, you need guys who can catch. So he's a little bit interesting. But other than that, you know, there's not a lot. And it kind of makes sense. They really haven't devoted significant resources to it. One exception, which ended tragically, obviously in 2017, they gave Daniel Flores $3.1 million, which is the most money they've ever given to a, a amateur other than, I think, Yohan Moncada. And he, that's an insane amount of money for an international guy. And obviously he tragically passed away um, before he even appeared in an official game. But he was someone who I think they kind of, they identified early and everyone I talked to around the game thought was a potential had huge potential. And other than that, you know, they just haven't devoted a lot of money to it both in the draft or internationally. And I think that's why it's so weak, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. I do wonder if that was a conscious decision because just developing catcher seems very difficult. So it might be something they've decided to invest in the secondary market rather than try and do exactly. that. And that's why you're seeing like in AAA, it's always, they're always recycling the Juan Centeno types. So, you know, they're going out and getting Sandy Leone or Kevin Plawecki, guys like that, you know, who they just don't seem to value, you know, the hitting side of the catcher that much. And, you know, Vasquez is a glove first guy, but he hit really well last year. And so it's going to be interesting to see if they kind of, what, what happens going forward and if they do, if the right catcher falls to them or if, in the draft or internationally if they do target them and give a big bonus but it's just not a position they seem to have valued very highly and as a result it's the weakest in the system to me um two questions before we move off of catcher here uh, quick hits for you uh connor wong does he have a chance to be a major league starter I, it's a tough one to say because i've not seen him yet and i i i hate like you know making these decisions based off just talking to people or video but i not sure with that much swing and miss you know 31 percent in double a is that's a lot that's a lot like bobby dahlbeck who is a better prospect than wong and we ask have big like questions about his hit tool was like 25 percent in triple a last year like i just i I need to see how wong adjusts and kind of get some eyes on him and see what are the issues and why is there so much swing and miss in this game before i'd be comfortable making a prediction there but because of his position versatility i do think there's a chance he's like he he seems like someone who at least could be a very solid, you know, like utility, not utility, but like a bench type who can give you some position versatility. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, second question is a guy who we both saw hit some tanks last year. Well, Jax Groshans, mm-hmm. um, Zephyr John's battery mate. Uh, is there anything there? Because, you know, his home runs were pretty. Yeah, I, I liked him in Lowell. I thought he was athletic. Um, he could he, he had some bat speed, which I liked, and as you said, the raw power. I think the catching part of the game is pretty rudimentary and needs some work. Um, I saw him really struggle receiving and getting kind of down and smothering those balls in the dirt, but he does move well because he's athletic, and his arm, is it works enough. So 
I, I do think there's upside and he's someone who just is outside our top 60. And I, I've mentioned before that um, if, you know, if he can improve his pitch recognition and kind of tighten things up defensively, he could, could see a stock rise considerably this year. Okay. Um, moving on from a weakness in the system to a strength corner infielders. Tell mm-hmm. me what that looks like. Yeah, I, I think this is the strongest of the position positions in, if you understand what I'm saying there. Um, of the position of the hitters hitting side of the game. Right. And, yeah. uh, it's, and this is just factoring in the minor league. Obviously, if you're taking a major league and the account, it's not even close just because you have Rafael Devers, who's a potential, like, you know, consistent all-star, blah, blah, blah. We know how good Devers is. But, um, other than that, you know, you look and you just have, you have some real high end blue chippers and that's kind of what sets it apart from the other positions is you have a couple of them. You have a pair of them with Tristan Casas and Bobby Dahlbeck. And obviously, Casas is much higher ranked uh, in our eyes than Dahlbeck, because um, Casas is someone that everyone you talk to just is glowing. Um, you know, he's the type of guy you can see hitting in the middle of the lineup for a long time. He's huge, but there's the power, the contact. You know, it's just going to be hitting, cutting down the strikeouts, and hitting lefties. Those are the questions with him. But you know, he's a he's the only one of what two consensus top 100 guys in the system. Yeah, and, and one of the few first basemen, too, that makes exactly. everybody's and that, first and that's, uh, top 100. And that's the thing, first baseman, because those lists are not fantasy lists. They're real baseball prospect lists. Like, they really do not necessarily – they're taking into account positional value. And first base is obviously the lowest on the defensive spectrum, Other that and left field. And so when you have a first base and only guy they and you're in the top 100, you must really be able to hit. And that's what Costas can do. So, yeah, he's definitely a really exciting guy. But then you have the Bobby Dahlbeck question, which is he can really hit home runs. His power is insane. His arm is insane. It's just, is he going to, is last year's increase? Because he, he dropped from, I think it was like a 32% strikeout rate down to a 25% or so. Is that real? And if that's real, then there's a much better chance he could tap into his power. But if that's not real, I mean, He's a guy who's never hit above like 260 in his minor league career, save for that stretch in Lowell where he was just way too good for the pitching. So, you know, even with guys, you look at like the Joey Gallo, you know, slugger who strike out a ton types, all those guys hit above 300 or around it in the minors. And Dahlbeck just hasn't done that. So it's just, I'm just still very concerned if he's ever going to make enough contact to be more than like a platoon type. But I guess, I mean, if he can carry forward kind of the improvements he made last year, then he's got a much better chance. And that was something I was most looking forward to seeing this year. But obviously, it's going to have to wait. But, um, um, so yeah, we'll see. Let, let's talk about those two for, for a second here. So uh, Tristan Casas is a guy who, you know, I can't wait till he's he's in the high minors so I can actually see him around here up in Portland. But um, one of the things that I've found intriguing is that he has a very different approach and his two strike approach than he has, you know, when he's uh, either ahead in the count or you know uh, in, in a position to to attack. Um, he he kind of uses the bat to kind of choke up a little bit to shorten things for him because he is such a massive guy. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like a rare quality for a first base slugger to kind of have that wherewithal to shorten things up and and he's recognizing that this is a weakness for him and he's going out and he's trying to do something to uh get rid of that weakness exactly yeah he, i mean he's, he's a real student he's someone who really takes his craft seriously and i remember last year in spring training he was trying to he was uh kind of 
fooling around or not fooling around, but he was trying to start like that, um, start hitting with this, that really wide base, like the entire in the beginning of real games, even with like before two strikes and he just didn't take to it, went back to his normal, you know, first two before he got two strike approach, he just started, uh, killing the ball again. And I think it's just something that he recognizes that how his game is going to play, you know, you can't strike out. You, there's only a few handful of guys in the league who can strike out a ton. And as a first baseman, he's going to have to make contact. And with a two strike approach like that, you know, it's something that he's helping the team when he's doing that, you know, it might sacrifice his numbers, but he's willing to, you know, take that and just try to put the ball in play, get on base. And let's be honest, he still has power when he does that. And there are some guys in the big leagues who do that successfully right now. I know like you look at Freddie Freeman as someone who always chokes up with two strikes. Yeah. So I mean, Juan Soto completely changes his stance. Exactly. So it's, it's not like it's a unique thing. You know, there are successful players who can do it. And I just, I think it shows just kind of the feel and kind of the advanced um, instincts that he has for the game and that he's shown when I've seen him play that he's willing, he understands that that's something he needs to do or he's willing to do um, kind of to help him out. Um, Bobby Dalbeck, he does have a ton of swing and miss to his game. He did make some improvements in that regard last year. One thing that encourages me, and let me know if you've noticed this as well, but it does seem like for all the swing and miss that's in Bobby Dalbeck's game, he does also seem to have the ability to hit good pitching. Oh, yeah. I mean, Dalbeck can turn around, you know, good pitching up in the zone. I think he, he showed it um, when he was on that Team USA team this year. Um, what was it? In the the qualifying games or whatever? I don't remember exactly. The WBC qualifiers. Yeah. Facing yeah. some pretty advanced pitching, you know, things like that. And he's shown it in, in spring training in limited spurts too. Um, he's not afraid. You know, he'll go up there and he thinks he can hit anyone. And obviously that's going to lead to strikeouts. But he will take a walk too. You know, it's one of these things that if he taps into his power, you will live with the strikeouts. Because if he's like a 230 hitter, he's probably going to hit 35 home runs a year. And you're fine with that. Yeah, that, that, that'll play, especially with the ability for him to play both first, third, and potentially left field effectively because he's a pretty good athlete. Yeah, I mean, he's not the fastest guy, but as you said, he was a pitcher, you know, also in high school, or sorry, in college, you know, he, he can move, he doesn't have lead feet, even though he's like 6'4", you know, 230, 240, I don't know what he's listed at, let me look. Oh, he's not going to be on the roster I have. But um, yeah, I mean, he's a big guy, but he can move a little bit. He's always got a very strong arm. And I, I will say the one thing that I did notice is last year, his defense did regress a little bit at third base. He was not as good as when I saw him the previous year. And obviously with the Red Sox, he's not going to be a third baseman full time. Let's be honest. They have that locked up for anyone who thinks Devers defense is bad. It's not. <laughs> um, so Big improvement have, last year, too. Yeah. So they have Devers at third base. So he I think first base is ultimately where his ticket to the Red Sox, you know, long term is. And they obviously have a need there. So it'll be interesting. And I think they're hoping that he's can kind of come out and take a stranglehold on that position this year so that they don't really have to invest in it other than maybe up someone to face, you know, really tough righties, a left-handed bat bench type, you know, corner uh, to compliment him for next year. All right. And finally, uh, moving over to the uh, middle infielders. Um, what's the state of this one? Because I'm seeing kind of some, some mixed signals here because we, we do have some, some high points, some low points. I'm not sure how much depth there is though. I don't think there's a lot of depth in the high minors. Uh, you're really talking about Jeter Downs being the top guy, and that's not close. And he's someone who obviously I think they identified as the second baseman of the future. Um, they have Xander Bogarts at shortstop, obviously, so he's not going to play there. And he's going to start at shortstop when if they play this year. But long term, he's going to be a second baseman, I think. And 
he's a really exciting guy there and obviously was a key addition as a part of that trade frankly i liked him better than gratterall even before the injury stuff came up so i was pretty happy to see him as part of that trade um and then after that you know you have cj chatham who's fine he's you know an emergent up and down kind of bench type not not really much ceiling but after that you're the only guys you're really looking out of any interest you have to go all other than arouse who we mentioned who technically still has prospect eligibility you have to go all the way down into the low minors and it's all guys who they've added in the last two years where we've kind of seen them really focus on adding middle infield and um i do wonder if part of the reason they took that there was kind of a gap when we when we went through the draft in the international after yohan moncada signed in uh 2015 for obviously 32 million but it was then traded they really didn't invest heavily in the middle infield for a few years. And I do wonder if they thought that they had Bogarts and Pedroia locked up till 2021. So, you know, from 2014 to 2018, they kind of were set at middle infield. Hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder whether or not they got into that. And, uh, you know, that was that played into that decision. It seems kind of like an odd thing to assume, because I always assume that baseball teams would approach the draft the same way that NFL teams, especially like the Patriots, approach the draft, and it's not really about positional need; it's about what the best player is available. So, well, it I would do, seem to me a little odd to. to I do, I do think it. it was best player available, but I think the baseball draft is different in the sense that you have the slotting system and you have like a bonus pool, whereas the NFL slots are all the same thing. Right. So you know, with baseball, you have to move money around; you have to do certain things, and like CJ Chatham signed for under slot, for example, like. They might not. They obviously didn't think he was the best player available because they would have given him slot if they did. You know, mm. they they need they knew they needed to move money around for other picks. So, I do think that element kind of changes things when it comes to the baseball like acquisition market. But, I mean, we saw last year and whether it was best player available or not, um, they went big time with middle infield. You know, Cameron Cannon, who was their second round pick slash first round pick, they you know signed for over a million. Matthew Lugo. In the second round, signed for over a million. They took a, a bunch of like interesting guys after and gave them, you know, almost 125k or more. And then internationally, they've gone pretty big, you know, last um, with guys like Brainer Bonacci, who's very exciting, very impressed people big time in the DSL. And then you know, signing a bunch of guys for 200 to you know 500k internationally, and and then Anthony Flores, obviously for 1.4 million. So I was not impressed last year with uh, Cameron Cannon when I saw him, and I was not impressed with Anthony Flores. Are those two guys going to make it? Or, I mean, what's your impression of those two players? So with, Ca- with Cannon, I agree. I was not impressed. And uh, talking to scouts who saw him, neither were they. But I do think that something I hadn't really factored in at the time, and I found out after the fact, was he, the Red Sox were t- uh, trying to change his swing mechanics and his load specifically. And so I think that that could have played a part in his struggles because, you know, as someone who played baseball, albeit poorly for a while, um, you know, when you're if you try to change the mechanics you've used at the plate for your entire life, you know, after 20 plus or whatever, 15 plus years of playing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get to pro ball and they're like, we want you to do this instead. I do think that's going to mess with your timing and everything. And I remember seeing him and I, I, I saw there was bat speed, you know, there were some things worked, but it's just his timing was just completely off. And just he kind of looked anxious. He was just pressing, trying to just hit the first pitch that came in. And I do wonder how much of that was tied to them tweaking with his mechanics and him not being comfortable with it. And so that's something that I was I was very interested to see him this year to see if he's remained with these kind of new mechanics or he's gone back to what he was doing in college and kind of I'm not ready to write him off yet, basically, is what I'm getting at. 
Um, and then for Flores, yeah, he wasn't good last year either. I saw him at Instructs two years ago, and he was the talk of Instructs. Everyone was like, oh, man, this is the next guy. Um, you know, this is potential someone who, you know, you can dream on being an everyday shortstop. And then last year, his just his body got away from him. You know, he, he showed up, and he was bigger. His athleticism was gone. That quick-twitch athleticism he had in Instructs just wasn't there. And we saw it kind of, I think it impacted him. And it seemed to me that kind of as he started to struggle, it kind of just spiraled. And, you know, he knew he was almost defeated when he went to the plate. And yeah, he, he didn't yeah. look like he could catch up to fastballs no. even in, in Lowell, which was kind no, of surprising bat- for someone who signed for over a million. Yeah, his bat speed was just gone. And it just, I, I do think, I don't know how much of it was the body, but it, it was noticeably thicker. And he was just more of like an athlete when I saw him in Instructs. And then he comes to Lowell and even in the field you saw it he was he was not good defensively whereas in low in uh in instructs he looked really good defensively he moved really well and he just lacked that fluidity and kind of quick twitch athleticism i've seen from him in the past and so i'm not sure he's a tough one to, to for me to make i don't know what to make of him honestly um the guy i saw last year is you know not someone i could see getting out of the low liners but the guy we saw at instructs two years ago i had scouts throwing like you know a potential like regular on so hmm. It's a tough one, and he's someone who this year was going to be a big year for him. I assumed he was going to head back to Lowell. So I was going to be really interested to see him again, but obviously that's up in the air right now. But So we might have to wait. But, I mean, the tools are in there. It's just whether or not we're ever going to reach that upside and you know kind of maximize his tool and potential is, remains to be seen. All right, so the last position that you haven't actually released it on yet, but uh, that's outfield. What's outfield looking like? Is that looking like a strength or a weakness for the Red Sox at this point? Um, I think it's kind of in the middle. I think it's better than or it's better than catcher, obviously, which I guess that's not really hard to do. Um, but I don't think it's as good as corner. It's not as good as corner infield, and I don't think it's as good as middle infield either. Um, it's kind of. It's a tough one because they have a lot of interesting guys, but kind of as we talked about with the pitching, like they're all far away and same with middle infield. Um, but they've really, you know, they've, they've made a lot of investment into this position uh, over the last year plus. Um, and they have, you know, Jaron Duran's really the only high minors guy of note that you see, but you know, internationally last year they signed a bunch of guys like Eduardo Lopez for a million one, Eduardo Vaughn for five fifty, Brian Gonzalez for five hundred, um, Daryl Bellin for thirty five thousand, who looks really interesting. And then this year Juan Chacon got nine hundred, which was their biggest bonus. So they've started to uh, devoting a lot of resources to it. Whereas prior to that, you know, it was a lot of a hundred to three hundred thousand dollar bonuses. And then similarly in the draft, you know. Prior to 2017, they were just taking college guys for the most part. Um, obviously, they hit a home run with Andrew Benintendi with that pick. But other than that, you know, guys like Tate Matheny, just not a lot there. But then in 2017, they loaded up on, they took four high schoolers. Yeah, they took four high school guys. And then in 2017, you come back and they took another Nick Decker, another high school guy and gave him a ton of money. But then in this year's draft, they didn't really, you know, do a lot with outfield. So it has some interesting guys. Almost all of them are in the low minors, but... I mean, there's a lot of like upside potential with the guys in the low minor. So it's an interesting crew. Unfortunately, it's just not going to impact the major league squad for several years. Have you heard anything about Eduardo Lopez, the big international signing from a couple of years ago? Yeah, I mean, I saw him uh, in Instructs this year for a little bit. And 
it was just you know he's athletic i liked his ball there's some projection in the frame um it doesn't see like some of the other guys have like huge power a standout tool like gilberto him as a speed he doesn't really seem to have that but it's just he's got a bunch of like average-ish tools and you know we'll see where the body goes that's kind of but i did like you know he didn't strike out very much and he he walked a decent amount which i don't like reading dsl stats too much but there are certain red flags like if you're striking out over 25 percent in the dsl that's concerning to me right so he was someone you know it's like around 15 percent, which is fine so yeah um I mean, it, it was tougher this year because Instructs was truncated and I didn't get a full look. But And then obviously without going to spring training, you know, we didn't really get to see these guys in their, their first season. So I don't have as much intel as I would like to have. And DSL scouting reports are very hard to come by. But he's someone who's definitely, I mean, I, the people I have talked to have seen him, like they think that there's definitely something, could be something there. Last guy I want to talk about before we get to our listener questions and get you out of here, Jaron Duran. You mentioned him at the top. Um, over the winter, it is reported that Jaron Duran has been working on a hole in his swing um, that really got exposed at AA Portland last year when he struggled there. But he had trouble hitting uh, pitches on the inside, and he tweaked his swing this uh, winter to be able to get to those pitches better. Um what does that do for a guy like Jaron Duran, who, you know, we thought pretty highly of his bat before he got to Portland? Yeah, I mean, I saw him in Portland a little bit, and it was not, he didn't look very comfortable. And I think it was just one of those, he made that adjustment as a college guy who kind of got to, uh, he got out of Long Beach State, fixed his swing up, excelled for a year plus. But then you get that jump from Salem to Portland, that, you know, A ball to double A jump is so difficult. And that's where you're starting to face those crafty guys who will just hammer you with fastballs up and in, you know, things like that. And he's someone who doesn't really have power. And I think just pitchers started challenging him and we're like, okay, you're not going to hit a home run against us. So we're just going to hammer you inside and you have to prove that you can pull the ball with authority. Whereas Durant's someone who at his best, he's, he's using all fields, you know, he's very comfortable going the other way, just hitting the ball hard that way. And I think pitchers were kind of, he got exposed in that regards as, they said, okay, yeah, you, like you're not going to turn it. You're not going to turn around a fastball up and in on us and hit it out to the park. So we're just going to throw it there over and over again until you prove you can beat us. And that's something he just couldn't do. And if he can fix that hole in a swing, that's a big deal for him because I'm not sold. He's an everyday guy. I, I think there are definitely two carrying tools. You know, he's got the run. And I do think he can hit. I think it's a potential like above average hit tool. But, you know, in today's day and age, it's tough to be a guy who's like a well below average maybe like a five to ten home run guy unless you're an elite defensive center fielder which i don't think he is so it's a tough profile if there's no power and if he has a big hole in his swing so if he can fix that that's i mean obviously a big deal and definitely gives him a better chance of reaching his ceiling yeah it seems like the red sox might have to turn to some sort of a stopgap uh next year after jackie bradley is gone uh, assuming they don't re-sign him to uh, see who they're going to have in center field because I was thinking that maybe Jaron Durant had a chance to take that spot, but you're right. I mean, there's a lot riding on what was going to happen developmentally this year, and it seems like we're not going to get that chance. Exactly, and he's someone who I'd be, I'm very fascinated to see if they do end up playing if he ends up on that taxi squad because mm. the Red Sox, let's be honest, they have no speed. Um in their like on their that current projected bench or really in their system and he's the only guy in the high minors who can add that and i feel like that's something that in a shortened season you need those pinch runners because every game is going to matter so i do wonder if he's someone they would consider you know being a little aggressive and keeping on the taxi squad 
with the eye towards if they need him, bringing him up in a bench outfield role, both given the lack of outfield depth they have in the high minors. And then again, the unique attribute that he brings that they don't have anyone else who can really replicate. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And I'm rooting for him too. He seems like a a cool guy and a good player. So we're rooting for Jaron Duran for sure. All right, so let's get to our uh, listener questions here. Um, We do have one from John Becker, um, and we already answered it. Unfortunately, I forgot to give you credit for it when we were answering it, but he said, if the season happens and rosters expand to 30, who on the Sox serves to benefit most from those extra spots? Um, So at least we did answer your question, John. And then our final listener question comes from Chris Hatfield, uh, who says, who is your favorite editor? And who is your favorite person to host podcasts with? And this one's directed towards you, Ian. Um, I think my favorite editor is John Mioli. Um, he's a writer with the Baltimore Sun right now. Does a great job covering the Orioles. You should all go check out his stuff. And, uh, yeah, he was really good um, back when he was with the website, and he really helped me out with my writing a lot. Um, and then in terms of podcast co-hosts, unfortunately, I only have one co-host, so I guess I'm going to have to say Chris right now. Um, but we might be taking auditions, so maybe Chris can be replaced at some point in the foreseeable future. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I do think Chris does a great job hosting the Sox Prospects podcast that I'm also a part of. Uh, he does a really good job leading it, and um, yeah, he's very good at what he does, so I would have to say him. Yeah, Chris is fantastic at what he does, and what you guys do over at uh, Sox Prospects is absolutely indispensable uh to me and in my research on the red Sox and for uh, how we cover the team over here at over the monster as well so if all of you guys out there are not yet familiar with chris and ian's work and the great people over at Sox prospects please go get yourselves familiar with that if you're a red Sox fan it is a must read um check out on ian's um his his series his state of the position series uh he's got another one of those dropping on tuesday or wednesday of this week so you'll be able to see that as well and then also subscribe to the Sox prospects podcast it's a fantastic podcast where ian and chris really deep dive into the minor leagues in a way that um you know i've learned a tremendous amount from over the years so we really appreciate your stuff ian um, so with that, oh, I'm sorry, I was just gonna say thank you, Jake. I really appreciate the kind words, and obviously, uh, we, you guys at Over the Monster have been a great friends with us for a long time, and uh, we obviously enjoy your your guys' work as well. And uh, I look forward to both of us being able to help each other out going forward, as we already have. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a great relationship so far, so we'll keep it going. Um, so make sure you go on Twitter, um, follow Sox Prospects, follow Ian. You can find Ian at, at Ian Cundall, I-A-N-C-U-N-D-A-L-L. You can follow me at at DevJake. You can follow the Over the Monster account at at Over the Monster. And uh, we will be with you again uh, next week. So, Ian, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jake. It was a lot of fun.